Okay, hello, good evening, happy Wednesday to everybody, welcome in, this is the Deep Dive Bible Study, no countdown, you'll notice, went right to the face, right to the beard, and uh, that's because we're trying to shorten up these uh, videos, get right to the content, so welcome in to the Deep End, oh sorry, no, the Deep Dive Bible Study. Yeah, we're in Romans chapter 9, and... Uh, Rough start, right? <laughs> Romans chapter 9 to 11. Last week, we talked about God's sovereignty. This week, we're talking about man's responsibility. Uh, it is episode 20 on season 5 of The Deep Dive, and all I ask is for a like, share, or subscribe to the channel. We're so glad that you're here. The Book of Romans has been shaping our hearts and our minds. Amen? I've appreciated it. I'd like to know where you're watching from, so let me know down in the comments or to the right the comments. Love to hear from you guys. Let's pray and we'll get into the um, into the book of Romans one more time. All right, here we go. Father, thank you for this chance to study your word. I pray that my words will be what you want them to be. Our hearts and our meditations will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go. Book of Romans. Okay, let's get back to where we are in the book of Romans as I try to do two things at once, flip Bible pages, and also <laughs> speak to you. Um, this is the outline that we're on. Romans 9, Israel's past election. Romans 10, Israel's present rejection. Romans 11, their future restoration. So we are right here. We are in Romans 10. What does Israel's present rejection have to say about us, about who we are and how God saves. And a quick reminder from last week's content, we discussed this, that Romans 9 is teaching us who does God save, who does God elect unto salvation. And what we find is that it's always the person who the world would not choose. Now, I want to make a point and a point about that in just a moment, but just to put up for your reminding, Ishmael, Esau, firstborns, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, not chosen. World chose them, not chosen by God. But who is chosen? Second-born sons, Isaac, Jacob, and slave Moses. Now, that is not to suggest that God only chooses those who are uh, unchosen by the world or the people that the world despises. It's just to show that what God is trying to portray in those texts is that God not man does the saving, right? <laughs> it is not God's, it's not man's opinion that matters. It is God's opinion that matters. And that should teach our heart not to chase after the approval of man, but to chase after or long for the approval of God, which we all find freely in the gospel, reminding ourselves that no one deserves it. Amen. And so now we've discussed that. That's what Romans 9 is teaching us through Israel's past election. But if we are going to be completely honest, most of Israel, that is those native children, biological children of Abraham, do not believe on Jesus Christ. And they didn't in Paul's day either. They have been hardened and, 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 and God has hardened them actually uh, over these last 2,000 years. And so what, what does that mean? And how do we reconcile that with man's responsibility. That's what we're talking about today. As we turn the page, well, we're not going to turn the page just yet. We're going to finish off Romans 9, then get into Romans chapter 10. So with that in mind, let's get into uh, what it meant. 
So three segments, what it meant, what it means, why it matters, what it meant. Let's get into the text right away. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, okay? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, lots here. Let's unpack it. Two kinds of righteousness. First, there is the righteousness that is by faith, which the Gentiles who did not pursue the righteousness that the Jews pursued, they attained righteousness by faith. But the Jews or Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. What is Paul saying? He is saying that the Jews have pursued a righteousness of the law, which does not save, and that the Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness of the law, because they, they did not have the law, remember, they received a righteousness by faith. And they received it through Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, the Jews stumbled over the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone is Jesus Christ. He is the stone of stumbling. He is the rock of offense. Remember that Jesus himself says, blessed is he who is not offended in me. So we have Jesus, the linchpin of the difference between a, a, a works-centered righteousness and a faith-centered righteousness. And what Paul is doing here is he's summarizing the Romans 9 argument that those who missed God's grace missed it because they were pursuing their own righteousness. And this happens still to this day, and it's why Romans chapter 9 and 10 still matter. Because in Christ, the script is always flipped. We just talked about that. Jacob, Esau, Moses, Pharaoh, right? Isaac, Ishmael. In Christ, the culture script is always flipped. In Christ, the insiders are out, the outsiders are in, the giants lose and the underdogs win. I just, I made that rhyme up. <laughs> I wrote that rhyme. The insiders are out. The outsiders are in. The giants lose and the underdogs win. So what do we do? Because again, the Jews pursued a righteousness by the law, could not attain it because Jesus is the stumbling block because you don't have righteousness with God apart from Jesus. So what do you do? You don't want to, you don't want to do what, historically, every person that rejects God and Christ do, which is to boast in their own accomplishments, their own works of righteousness, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So you've got to humble yourself. That's really what he's saying there. To receive the gospel, this is why God chooses the foolish things of this world. That's why he chooses the things that are not. This is also in 1 Corinthians. The things that are despised. To shame those things that are. To bring to naught those things that are. To shame the wisdom of man, right? Because it is constantly a battle of the wills. Man's will thinking that he knows better than God. And we have been doing that. We have been acting like that since Genesis 3, since the garden. And we all follow our great ancestors' footsteps in thinking that we know better than God. And God has no obligation to save us, but he does. And that leads us to a conversation in Romans chapter 10 about what Israel's present rejection is asking us to wrestle with. Here's what it's asking us to wrestle with. The tension between God's sovereignty and election and human responsibility. God sovereignly saves, so how am I responsible? Well, you are. And we're going to un unpack that. Uh, whereas chapter 9 talked about a sovereignty, chapter 10 deals with 
Israel's rejection and, and why their rejection, listen to this very carefully, is without excuse is without excuse. Their rejection is without excuse. And every person's rejection of God is without excuse. We're going to talk about that today. When it comes to human responsibility, let's unpack what that is. There's two things that we are responsible to. Number one, we're responsible to hear the gospel and believe it. Now, what measure of the gospel we hear is dependent upon who has come and told us the gospel. But once we hear it and believe it, we have another responsibility. And this is where a lot of Christians don't realize their responsibility here. You have believed the gospel. Now it is your job to share it. And there is an infinite number of ways in which you can help partner with the church to share the gospel. God's sovereignty, okay, and we're going to talk about this on the other end of that spectrum, is that he is beyond our understanding. And secondly, he understands everything. Now, you've got to remember that. Because there's always going to be some measure of this whole um, equation, this spectrum, let me put it back on the screen, that we don't grasp. There's always going to be some measure of, you know, question. Because we're human, we don't understand God fully. He is beyond our understanding, and yet he understands everything, and he understands us. We don't understand him, he understands us. Now, here's another way that you have to understand God's sovereignty. God not only understands everything, but he knows everything that's going to happen. And he's going to use everything that has happened, is happening, and will happen to bring about his ultimate purpose to save some. Now, that's a mouthful, but let me just say it like this. If God knew that Israel would reject his son, right? Uh, the smart play is don't send your son to Israel. They're going to reject him. But he doesn't do that, does he? He still sends his son. They still reject. And their rejection leads to the cross. And the cross becomes the means by which God saves anyone who believes. And this is, now we're dealing with physics, right? We're dealing with metaphysics because it's a space-time conundrum for us. We live in space and time. God does not. God does not live in space and God does not, does not live in time. Now, in Christ, he chose to limit himself to space and time, but but that's God the Son in human form, right? God, God eternal and immortal and invisible is beyond space and time. Just, just his being God makes him beyond our grasp, okay? And any, and I want to say this, you got to hear this very carefully. Any God that you understand fully is a God that is now subjected to your understanding and it makes him subservient to you, not you subservient to him. I think I touched on this last week. I say a lot of stuff, so I don't remember, but I'm touching on it again because it's important to get this. You must embrace mystery if you're going to follow the, the, uh, the God who's beyond your understanding. You have to. This is why atheists who make their silly little arguments about why they don't believe in God, their arguments are always expecting God to be subject to their understanding of what he should be. In effect, they have made themselves out to be God of God, in charge of God, and then they have conveniently rejected him. So this is, these are philosophical concepts that honest questioners and honest seekers will come to, and the answers that they will arrive at are what I'm presenting to you, which is based on what Paul is presenting to you here, which is so helpful because it humbles us, brings us to a place of where we need to be dependent on God and reliant on him for truth in our lives. 
But again, the question comes, how do we reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? We are responsible. There is no one who's going to hell who will say, I didn't have enough information. There's no one who will be able to say that to God. And we've already discussed that from Romans chapter 1 and 2 and other places. And, and we'll get to what, where other places in the Bible where that's why that's a reality. Uh, no, everyone is responsible. And then God is sovereignly saving some. And some people like to say, well, how do I reconcile these two? And I, I always love the story of Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher from London, who was asked, how do you reconcile? How do you reconcile sovereignty, God, divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And he replied, I never try to reconcile friends. <laughs> and it's such a great answer. I mean, it's like a, it's a pithy answer, but it's a true answer. They work together somehow. Beyond our understanding, God's sovereignty and human responsibility work together. Like I said, God even uses the, his, the rejection of him, the human rejection of him, to bring about the salvation of others. And that's what Israel is doing right now. They are rejecting God, but God is making their rejection an opportunity for the Gentiles to receive him. And that's what Paul's going to say here. So you've got to understand also about God's sovereignty that knowing that God saves is a heck of a lot better than relying on anybody else to save you. Knowing that God sovereignly saves you is a heck of a lot, a heck of a lot better and far more peace giving than depending on you or trusting that the devil won't kill you and destroy you and send you to hell. Right? Because when it comes to who's in charge of your salvation, you've got three options. You've got you, you've got the devil, and you've got God. So some people like to say, well, I chose Jesus. No, you, you didn't. You naturally chose sin. Otherwise, the Bible is lying when it says in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no one seeks God. Romans 3, 10 and 11. You are not in charge of salvation because Jonah 2, 9, salvation is of the Lord, right? And Romans chapter 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have, and I'll harden whom I harden. So I'm just saying, if you want to say that you took credit for saving, for getting saved and choosing God, uh, it's just not in line with scripture. It really isn't. And Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's every single person. You have sinned. Why? Because you are a sinner. And sin, as we have talked about before, is a condition, not an action. It's first, well, it is an action too, but it's first a condition, then it leads to an action. You, I, and everybody in between run away from God endlessly. And, and without his intervention, we are destined for hell. Now, let's say the devil's in charge. What if the devil is in charge of just leaving you alone enough so that you get saved? Like some people believe that. Like some people believe that the devil's in charge of keeping people in darkness. No, that's not true. No. Otherwise, the devil's responsible for who gets saved. Like he lets a few people slip out of his fingers. That makes him in charge of salvation. No, don't believe that at all. Because the scriptures are very clear that the devil can do nothing outside of the permissive will of God. That's Job chapter 1 and 2. That's also Romans chapter 8. I'm sorry, that's also Peter uh, being sifted as wheat, as Jesus says, to uh, deny the Lord Jesus uh, at, on the night of his crucifixion. Satan has sought to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that after you were restored, you will strengthen your brother. So God was completely in charge, even of Peter's temporary rebellion um, at the hands of the devil. But even in Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul makes clear that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God, not angels or rulers or principalities, present powers or things to come. So the devil is definitely not in charge of uh, keeping people in salvation or keeping people away from salvation because then he is in charge. No, God's in charge. By the way, and I said this to the, a men's group a couple of nights ago, 
Jesus is in charge of hell. You understand that he's the one that holds the keys of hell and death. He's got the key to the gates of hell. He won that with his blood. He destroyed and disarmed, Colossians 2 says, the powers and the principalities with his blood and his resurrection. They are nullified. Their power is nullified. Satan has no power other than the power that God gives him. Satan does not rule in hell. Satan does not rule in hell. A lot of theology comes from Tom and Jerry and not the Bible in, in Americans' minds. Satan is not in charge of hell. Jesus is in charge of hell. And the people that go to hell are sent there by Jesus. Now, that might sound very harsh, but it is very biblical. Anyone that is saved from hell is also saved by the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? So let's go now to number three on this list, which is God. God is in charge of your salvation and God is love. Hello, that should be all you need to hear. He is of endless compassion, merciful to the thousandth generation. That's Exodus chapter 20. He never fails. He is faithful. He is loyal. He is kind. He is compassionate. He, 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 as, a, as a mother is with her infant child, so the Lord loves us. This is all in the Bible. We see passage after passage after passage of God's constant compassion for wayward sinners. And that's why out of the three options, out of the three options that we just presented as to who could be in charge of your salvation, you don't want to pick you because guess what? You always fail in sin, but also <laughs> let's go, let's just circle back to you for a moment. How many of you wanted to pick someone to marry and you're thanking God that he didn't let you pick them, right? How many of you voted for somebody and you, now you regret voting for them? How many of you went to a school and you regret it? Your, what I'm saying is your choices are always misinformed by your limited understanding. And so why would you ever trust your eternal salvation to your choice? Right? Because your choice is fickle. Well, maybe I'll choose Jesus for a few years, but then I'm going to eventually walk away. Although, you know what I'm saying? You have no assurance of salvation if that's the case. It can't be that. God is in charge and his choices are permanent and right. And that's why this doctrine matters. That's why we've got to read the Bible and see what it says. Now, I've talked a lot about Romans chapter 9, the last few verses. We've got to dial, delve into Romans chapter 10 because I'm going to go through the whole verse, the whole chapter today. Here's what he says in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear witness, I bear them witness, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay, let me just tell you what here Paul is saying. And please, please, please notice once again the heart of Paul for the people of Israel. My heart's desire. Remember back in Romans chapter nine, he talked about this. I have unceasing anguish in my spirit over the lost people of Israel. And now my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Um, quick question. If, how many of you say you struggle? God is sovereign. So why should I even bother uh, sharing the gospel and praying? Because God has chosen to use human means to do so. And, and Paul models that for us right here, doesn't he? My prayer to God is for them to be saved. How much better too, by the way, is it to pray for God to save them than to pray for them to get saved? People do not get saved. People are saved by the power of God that overwhelms their rebellion with his grace and with his mercy. You've got a much better chance of praying to God for their salvation than praying that they will get saved. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. Let me know in the comments below if you have any questions or the comments to the side. Also, if you haven't already, make sure that you are subscribed to the channel. Okay, so there's a problem here, though, for the Jews. And let's go back to it because here's what Paul, here's what Paul says. They have a zeal for God. They have a zeal. For they're, they're, they're zealous for the things of God, but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. No, we'll get to that in just a moment. And seeking to establish one of their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 
for Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Now, this is the this is the problem that Jesus ran into when he came to the Jewish people. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God, and they sought to establish. They wanted to establish a righteousness of their own, which, by the way, is called works righteousness. I am a good person, right? I'm good. I am good based on what I do. And because I'm good, I don't need God. And this is what every atheist says. I can be good without God. This is what the Jews were saying when Jesus showed up, which is why he rakes them over the coals, the Pharisees and the scribes, because they had produced this human form of law. They took the law of God. They took the scriptures and they kind of remanufactured them and twisted them and then added to them. And before they knew it, they had a whole host of human tradition that didn't lead people to God. It just created barriers between them and the the outsiders, the insiders and the outsiders. Why Jesus has the most stringent condemnations to the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 23, woe to you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. You should have tithed. By the way, anybody who tells you that Jesus didn't talk about the tithe has not read Matthew 23, 23. You should have tithed, but you shouldn't have neglected the others. You, you, you should have t- done justice, mercy, and faithfulness because the heart of the tithe is to be just and merciful and faithful. And I could explain that in another conversation, but that's not for right now. This is what Jesus is saying. Then he says this verse 24. I love this. You blind guy straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel because in the ancient world, you have to realize that flies were everywhere in the air. And so they would put these little strainers over their cups while they drank. And so they would make sure no flies got in. And then they would take the, they would take the flies out with the strainer, drink, and then they would put the, the, the strainer back on the cup. And Jesus says, the way that you're living is like you're going through this real uh, dedicated um, work to make sure that you don't swallow a gnat, but you're swallowing a camel at the same time. You've, you've fooled yourself, listen, on your own self-righteousness. You've fooled yourself thinking that you and your way to please God and serve God is the way. Or let me put it another way. You fooled yourself to think that the, your way to be a good person is the way. Back to Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Because Christ is the, or he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes end here in greek is telos or telos sorry telos which could be translated goal but ultimately is better translated as end okay what is it saying it's not saying that god's law ends like okay so now i'm i'm saved i can go kill people that i don't like no the law is the 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 goal or the end of the law is Christ. When you're running a race, the point is not to run the race. The point is to get to the end. You run to get to the end. Well, the point of the law is to get to Christ. That's what he's saying here. Christ is the end or the point of the law. Now, here's what happened for Israel. The law became a stumbling block for them, or Christ became a stumbling block for them because they were so beholden to the law, right, that they elevated the law to their salvation, their means of salvation. And then when Jesus shows up as the fulfillment of the law, okay, They reject him because they were more tied to their traditions, to their ideals, to their philosophies of what the law is saying than they were to the person of Jesus Christ who needed to save them from their failure to actually obey and keep the law. Now, 
I'm talking a lot about the scripture. Let me tell you about how this applies to you. In every church in America, in the world, in every church, there is insiders and outsiders based on some humanized version of the law. I was just having a conversation with a guy just outside the studio just now, and he was talking about dressing up for church. And there, there, right in there is a, a law, man-made law. Let me dress up for church because that's how I perform for God. Okay, that's just a man-made law. I, it really is. There's no scripture about it, first of all. Secondly, even if you want to say, well, we can reason out that you should dress up for God because, you know, God is holy and God is righteous. Well, yeah, true. But then how do you explain the fact that Jesus, who is holy, righteous, and true, hung out with tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes, and when a prostitute who is well-known for a prostitution comes and washes his feet with her hair, Jesus says she's forgiven of her sins because she's grateful. She's, she knows she needs me. My point is that we always do this in our human condition. We try to make something else the law, the, 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 the measuring stick of righteousness. And that's a convenient way to create insiders and outsiders in every church, in every gathering of churches and Christians. And then lost people have no chance of getting in because we put barriers. We put walls up where we should be putting bridges to say, look, we're just like you. We, we need Christ today just as much as you do. Come, let's, let's learn about Jesus together because it's not about following the law. It's about knowing the end of the law of Jesus Christ. Now, back to the text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So back to Romans chapter 5. Uh, did I explain that enough? Because that's back to that. He's saying, I've, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, I am the end of the law. Okay. Back to Romans chapter 10. He says, For, while, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will send into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will send into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. And notice all these quotations. We're going to get to them in just a moment. Quotation marks in the text. It says, That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, first off, Right off the bat, let's talk about this. Paul is quoting ad nauseum the Old Testament. Quotes all over, right? And I could walk you through all the texts from the Old Testament. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say, remember that he's talking about Jewish people. And he's talking to people who are Jewish, about people who are Jewish. And possibly some Jews are listening to this text, right? And he's quoting their Bible to them. And he's showing them that their Bible was always pointing to Jesus. Why? Because that's what the Bible does. The Bible points to Jesus. Old Testament and New Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy, he quotes from Isaiah, he quotes from Nahum, he quotes from, I mean, so many passages over the next few verses is incredible. Why? And it's going to unpack this text here where he says, <clears throat> look at look at this, uh, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ on, who will descend into the abyss. So who will go to these le great lengths to go get God for us? No, you don't need to do that because what does it say? The word, another quote from the Old Testament, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. And if you confess with your mouth, as you proclaim, that Jesus is Lord, you are saved. Here's what he's saying to Jewish people. You have been reciting these Old Testament texts every Sabbath. And as you recited them, you should have realized that they were actually pointing to Christ. And even in pointing to Christ, as you recited to them, you had the word in your mouth to know who Christ was. And yet... Their hardness of heart because of the law, because of their works righteousness, blinded them to their need for Christ. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? It's powerful. It's incredibly powerful. Jesus made this absolutely clear that the Old Testament, the Old Testament points to him. 
uh, Luke 24, 25. He said to the most foolish ones in slow heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is to the guys on the road to Emmaus. And it says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus takes the guys on the road to Emmaus through the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, Amos, you know, list them. And he says, all these scriptures are concerning me. Another passage, John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Again, law, righteousness. Uh, no, Jesus says it is they, the law, the scriptures, that bear witness about me, Jesus Christ. So you have to see what Jesus is constantly saying in the New Testament, that the Old Testament is pointing to him. Back to Romans chapter uh, 10 through 5, because he's saying, look, this word is already there. You Jews, not Gentiles, you Jews had these words in your mouth. You had, like he talked about in Romans 9 too, they had the glory, they had the covenants, this is Romans 9, 4 and 5, they had the law, they had the worship, they had the promises, they had every, they had no excuse because not only did they have natural revelation, they had supernatural revelation, the miracles of God, the covenants from Sinai, the powerful workings of miracles from at the hand of Moses and Elijah and Elisha and others, and yet, and yet they have missed the, the, the point of all that pointing to the reality that they need salvation from sin. Why? Back to the original point. Because they were blinded by what? Not sin. It's so important that you get this. They were blinded by their own self-imposed standard of good and bad, righteousness and unrighteousness. And no one knew that better than Paul because he was one of them. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is all Philippians chapter three language. He was excelling beyond his contemporaries in the school of Torah. So he knew what that whole you know, social structure was all about. The more law you had memorized, the more of a moral person they considered you. The more stringent you were about not working on the Sabbath, the more of a perfect person you seemed to be. The more you separated and segregated yourself from Gentile sinners and even unrighteous Israelites, the better that God thought of you. And that was all works-based righteousness based on their self-imposed standard of good and bad righteousness and unrighteousness. And listen to me, I'm going to say something. More people are blinded by their goodness than their badness. More people are blinded by their sense of self-righteousness than, than people are by their sense of unrighteousness. I will attest to that as a pastor for 20 plus years, that what keeps more people out of heaven is their sense of being a good person in their own valuation of themselves than their understanding that they are sinners who need someone to help them. Okay, Romans 10.10. 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Again, the scriptures. He goes back to the scriptures in verse 11. For the scriptures, again, Old Testament scriptures. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, again, quotes, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, what is Paul doing? Masterful argumentation here. Masterful job. Quoting Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage to Jewish listeners and Jewish hearers and then Greek listeners, uh, Gentile listeners in the Roman church in the first century. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 28. He quotes from Joel chapter 2. He quoted from Deuteronomy 30 in the previous text that we looked at uh, in verses uh, 5 to 6. He's talking about the fact that there's no excuse. The scriptures have been telling you this and has been on your heart and in your mouth all this time. And you are without excuse. You are without excuse. 
Jews because you've got all the opportunity to know Jesus through the scriptures, and yet you have been hardened by your own moral righteousness. Remember, too, that Paul uh, regularly went through the cities of the ancient world and brought the gospel first to the Jews, as was his custom. What would he do? He would go to a new city and he would go into the, the synagogue. Let me, let me look at a passage with you here. Acts chapter 17 says, verse 2, And Paul went in, this was in Athens, and as was his custom on three Sabbath days. No, sorry, this is Thessalonica. And, and as was his custom on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Okay, they were looking for the Christ. They were looking for the Messiah, the the anointed one, Christos, anointed one. Okay, and the way that Paul presents it to them is he reasons from the scriptures. Okay, okay, modern American Christians, what scriptures would he have used? Not Matthew, wasn't written yet. Not Mark, not Luke, not John, (laughs) not Romans. He hadn't written Romans yet. He was talking about Isaiah. He was talking about Joel. He was talking about Ezekiel. He was looking at Moses. He was looking at all the scriptures that Jesus looked at with the people on the road to Emmaus. And you have to understand, there is plenty of evidence in the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ, and you don't even need the New Testament to arrive at that conclusion. How do I know? Because that's exactly how Paul gets to that conclusion. That's how Matthew and, and the people who walked with Jesus got to that conclusion. That's how the men on the road to amaze got to that conclusion. Because after they have dinner with Jesus and he breaks the bread and he disappears, what do, they say? What, is, what do they say about each other? They say, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures and as he showed us the passage? Like when you want your heart to burn as a Christian because you will find Jesus in the scriptures of the Old Testament and it really converts the heart. It's, it's powerful. It's powerful. Not to even come close to suggesting we don't need the New Testament. No, the New Testament presents the works of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, and then the rest after the Gospels is the work of the church, and then the epistles are the interpretation of Jesus Christ for the Gentile nations. Anyway, uh, there's plenty of evidence in the, New Te- in the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ. I, I remember back in 2006, a very prominent rabbi in Israel died. His name was Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri, 2006. He died in January. And he wrote a note in cryptic code. He was a Kabbalist. Kabbalists are all about writing mystical notes, like with codes and little, um, you know, uh, what was that thing? What do, you, what do you call it when you have a, ah, uh, oh, it just went into my head and out, where words refer to certain things. Anyway, it's going to bug me. Little Orphan Annie from A Christmas Story. He had to get the decoder. There you go. <laughs> the decoder. Okay. So, you know, Kabbalists do this. Anyway. He wrote a note in his little decoded or coded note in his little coded language that he wanted to have opened one year after he died. Now, this is all very weird and mystical. He was a Kabbalist. They are weird and mystical as it is. So they open on the year anniversary of his death. And this is actually reported all over the place, but I got a webpage from OpenTheWord.org where the code was read and they uh, decoded it in February 2007. And he clearly makes the case that Jesus Christ, the ones we Christians worship, is the Messiah. Now, why did he do it after he died? Why did he make it code? What? I don't know. Why was he so secretive? I don't know. What does that have to say with the fact that Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my works, so my, you know, I'll, I'll reject you. You know, I won't accept you. I don't know all those answers to those questions. All I know is that this rabbi who is absolutely familiar with the Jewish texts, 
came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ, the one that we Christians worship, is Jesus. And and you can go to it. Maybe we'll put a link down below in the notes or in the information. You can check out that page yourself. By the way, after he died, they asked his son about the note. Like, well, it had all these cross shapes. And, uh, you know, Jews, I don't know if you know this, but devout Jews avoid even writing um, plus signs because it too resembles, it comes close to resembling a cross. So they avoid that at all costs. He had cross shapes all throughout the note. And uh, they asked his son, look, why, why did he do this? And his son, who was interviewed by Israel Today, said that he had, had, he had um, met Messiah, Jesus, in his dreams. And came to the conclusion through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Which, by the way, is a powerful prophecy from Peter. Uh, a fulfillment of a prophecy from Peter on the day of Pentecost. Remember, Peter says that your old men shall dream dreams. And he's talking to Jewish people. So here's an old man dreaming dreams. Uh, and and this and the references in the last days. Now this happened in 2007. By the way, I was in Israel in 2018, and I remember that they were talking about the fact. And I was um, having dinner with a a um, Jewish family who was a Messianic Jewish family, so they believed in Jesus. They were Christians, and they have been working the ground in Israel for 25 years, hard ground. When they arrived 25 years ago, there was 500 born again Jews in the nation of Israel. 500. <laughs> Today there is 25,000. That's over the last 25 years. That is a bell curve um, escalation of, of uh, born-again Jewish people in the nation of Israel. Now, why do we need to know that? Because as the Jewish people come to Messiah, it signals the end of the age. I, it is, And I can go into that elsewhere, but it is really amazing and it's really thrilling and it should send a shiver up your spine. <laughs> And on top of all the other world events that we are seeing unfold right now, which we have talked about on the deep end, you should be just taking note that there are, and oh, and by the way, let me talk about another thing, and I want to put it out there for you guys to help sponsor it. It's uh, One for Israel. I think it's oneforisrael.org. We'll put that link in the description as well, that you've got to support this mission to get the gospel to the Jews. And I'm telling you something, when you do so, God blesses you. He has blessed our church through this big time. You've got to be instrumental financially or in activity to bring the gospel to the Jews because they are God's chosen race and they are the ones who get the gospel first and only because of their rejection do we get the gospel. And again, that all's, that's all gonna make sense in the next life to us. But the fact of the matter is that they are hardened right now and it is amazing to see those walls are starting to crumble down. They're starting to slowly crumble down. And before you know it, you're gonna see a massive worldwide revival of Jewish people coming to Jesus and the Lord Jesus is going to be knocking. He's going to be at the door. Ooh, I just, I get excited when I even think about that. Oh man, what an exciting time to be alive. Back to uh, the argument that Paul's making here though in Romans chapter 10, okay? Uh, he, he's basically saying this, the law leads us to Christ, but hardened hearts seek to be their own moral savior. Because there are two kinds of righteousness that Paul is spelling out, and you need to understand the difference between the two. There is law righteousness and there is faith righteousness, all the way back now to the beginning of Romans chapter 10 and the end of chapter 9. The law righteousness only for the Jew, based on works, self-righteousness, it cannot save you. It tells you to obey the Lord and it leads to pride because you either do it or you don't do it. Faith righteousness is for whosoever. It comes by faith alone. It is God's righteousness, not yours. It brings salvation. You don't, it's not obeying the Lord first. It's calling on the Lord to save you. And then it ultimately glorifies God because it's not about you. And understand that this is the one that we seek. And this is the one that the gospel is about. And this is the one that the scriptures uh, proclaim. 
let's go on in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him? Now, this is a very important passage. How then will they call on him? And before we read any further, the they is the Jewish people, right? Just remember that. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay. This is the great missionary text of the Bible, the great missionary text of the New Testament. We have got to go. Mankind is lost. God is totally sovereign. And both go together and both are, um, both are used together to reach the lost. See, he's, he's making the case very, very avidly, by the way, with these questions, because this is a... Uh, a didactic way of teaching. You kind of ask the question and then you answer it. And so what is he saying? He's saying, how will they call on him? They've got to believe, but how do they believe they have to hear? How do they hear if someone's got to go? And then how beautiful are the feet? Let's talk about that line too. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Um, Paul is saying that the ugliest part of you is beautiful <laughs> when you are instrumental in bringing the good news to the nations. And first to the Jewish people. Remember, go way back to Romans chapter 1 when he says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. This is, that order has not changed. It is to the Jew first and then also to the nations. If you are instrumental in bringing the gospel to the nations, to the Jews and then to the nations, your ugliest part, your feet, come on, let's be honest. Everybody's feet are nasty in some way, shape, or form. Your, your feet are beautiful. By the way, this is also from Isaiah and there's another quote there from Nahum. Why do I mention that? Because Isaiah prophesies to Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 52, he says, your God reigns. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach your God reigns, right? The good news is your God reigns. Okay. Isaiah preaches to Israel. Nahum preaches to who? You're not going to know the answer. I'll hear. I'm, that's why I'm here. Assyria. Assyria has a capital city called Nineveh. Nineveh was first reached with Jonah. They repented. 150 years later, they were back in sin again. Just like all cultures, they slowly deteriorate and, they, and then God sends them another prophet. And if they don't listen to the prophet, God destroys them. Nahum is the final prophet to Assyria. They don't repent and God destroys Assyria. Assyria is no longer on the map. The point is that, that Paul is quoting Isaiah who preaches to the Jews and Nahum who preaches to the Gentiles as a point to make that the gospel goes first to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. And he does all of this through the agency of human activity. Let me say that again. God brings the gospel to the Jews and then to the Gentiles through the agency of human activity. Yes, my friend, God's sovereignty can work hand in hand. God's sovereignty in electing unto salvation can work and does work hand in hand with your responsibility to make yourself available and your talents available and your abilities to, uh, available and your money available to bring the gospel to the nations. This is why you tithe to a church. This is why you give to missions beyond that. This is why I give to both my local church and to beyond my local church uh, to gospel preaching missionary endeavors. This is why our church, where I preach, we give one-tenth of all that comes in to outward or external gospel preaching endeavors because, because they're not going to hear without us and they're not going to repent without hearing. 
They need to hear the gospel. My friends, this, this, God's sovereignty should not make you lazy to bring the gospel. It should, it, should make, it should compel you to preach the gospel because you have been chosen. Remember the two responsibilities I said at the beginning of this episode. You have a responsibility to hear the gospel and then believe it. And then you have a responsibility having believed the gospel to share it. See how the episode all ties together? Verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask that Israel not understand. First, Moses said, I will make you jealous by those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All right. This is why I love to do slow Bible study. Because again, quote, 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 quote. He is Old Testamenting these people to, into oblivion, loaded here with Old Testament quotations. First one is from Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out into all the world. And if uh, you'll indulge me on the Bible cam, this is Psalm 19 here on the Bible cam. I was trying to do this earlier and I didn't get to it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pour forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout the, all the earth. This is the portion that Paul quotes. And their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a tent for the sun. Okay, so this is natural revelation. Verses 1 to 6. Natural revelation, which means when you look up at the stars, you can tell there is a God, there is a creator. When you look at the human being, when you look at the intricacy of the human eye, the human brain, you can tell there's a designer. Every, every intricate watch has a designer, right? That's the old watch, watch designer theory. There is no doubt that there is some, something holding this universe together. That's what Paul is saying here, okay? You have to be blind not to see that. You have to be blind not to see that. Um, then notice that in verse 7 of Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony is sure, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. On and on and on it goes. So he moves from general revelation, the heavens declare, to special revelation, the law of the Lord. So from general to special, God reveals through creation. God reveals through the word. And then finally... God reveals through the conscience because look what he says down here in the last verse of the text. Let my let the words of my mouth, we prayed this earlier, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In other words, I can tell you're existing because of the heavens. I know your truth because of the law, and I'm asking you, God, to change my heart. That's how you preach the gospel in, in Psalm 19, by the way, right there. Boom. Three. Any young preachers listening to me, there you go. There's your three-part sermon. God's natural law, God's special law, God's transformational word. Right. Anyway, transformational power. Maybe I'd change that to that that point. So he he quotes verse. Uh, uh, he quotes uh, Psalm 19. Then he quotes Deuteronomy 32 when he says, "I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation of foolish with a foolish nation. I'll make you angry." Remember that the the Gentiles uh, the Jews considered the Gentiles foolish. They also considered them in darkness. They also considered them not really a nation. And yet he's saving Gentiles right now to instigate jealousy amongst the Jews. And and Jews, again, are coming to Christ through this now in the last days. And you have to remember that God's heart is still for his people. And uh, then lastly, the last quote here is from verse 21 of Israel. He says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All I want you to see here is notice the heart of God. Notice, as I draw this haphazard heart on the screen, <laughs> For those of you listening, you really got to pay attention to the YouTube channel so you can see all the cool graphics that I come up with as I teach. Oh, man, I was, I was on the way there. Oh, now I'm going to obsess about this heart. There we go. How's that look? Rate my heart on a scale of 1 to 10 in the comments below. <laughs> the point is that God longs 
for his people who are disobedient and contrary. He, his heart is for the Jewish people. His heart is for the nation of Israel. And their hardening he is using to bring the gospel to the nations. Now, you say, well, I'm not a Jew. Does that mean that God loves me less? No, not, a, not at all. He chose you from before the foundations of the earth. We talked about that last week. It's just how God has chosen to work. It is just how God has chosen to work. Look, when you have Abraham on the um, backside of the Tower of Babel fiasco, and the, and the Tower of Babel fiasco follows the deluge of the earth through the flood and Noah's generation, right? So you got, you got Noah saved by grace as an instrument of righteousness, and he's the only one saved. The whole world is destroyed because the whole world is evil and unrighteous. Well, Noah and the people multiply and fill the earth. And then before you know it, they're, they're making a tower to heaven to make their name, a name for themselves. And God comes down and confuses their speeches and, and um, divides them into different nations and nationalities. And they spread across the earth. By the way, recent research, and this, I'm just in my head right now, going off on a tangent. Recent research has proved, linguistics have proved that all languages arrive or, or are sourced from an original a universal language that was on the earth sometime in the ancient world that was shared by all people that was never written down and we don't have access to it now. It's phenomenal how modern scientific research continues to find that the scriptures are true. Anyway, for another discussion, I know some of you are like so interested you want you want to know. Maybe we can put something in the in the notes again about where to find that information. Anyway, how did I get on that? Oh, so mankind makes this tower to make a name for himself. God comes down and confuses their speech. They spread out across the nation. Then God chooses one of those families, one of those nations to be his nation through which the nations would be saved. And that's Abraham. I don't know if I would have done it that way, but God has chosen to do, do it that way. And he is completely wise. And so that's where we, again, live in the comfort of our own not understanding God to say, God, you are in charge, not me. Thank God. Thank God you're in charge, not me. And this is how God has chosen to save and work. And this is how God has chosen even to use the rejection of Israel to bring about the salvation of you Gentiles, if you're not, if you're not a Jew. Okay, we've gotten through the text. Now let's talk about what it means. So I'm going to sum up these uh, segments really quickly. Number one, your own law can badly blind you to your need for Christ. Look, it's not just Israel's problem that the law and works righteousness um, uh, uh, blind them to Jesus. They're a case study. They're a case study of diehard commitment to a humanized standard of rituals and observances that may seem pious but are unable to save. They're a case study for every church-going person in America who believes that because they go to church, they're saved. That's not true. They're a case study for every person in America who thinks, well, I'm a good person because I, you know, I try to help the poor and I try to be nice and I try to smile and I try to do these nice things. And I, you know, I helped out this guy who was going through a hard time. And so I gave him a couple bucks. And so maybe I'm a good, I must be a good person. No, you're just diehard committed to a humanized standard, your humanized standard of rituals and observances that seem pious in your opinion. No wonder why Jesus constantly has to say to the people of Israel. He that hath ears, let him hear. How many times does he say that in the Old Testament? Even to his disciples, he says, guys, how long have I been with you? I've told you these things again and again and again, and still you don't listen. And, when, and then when he can, performs the miracles and he has to say to people, look, if you don't believe what I'm saying, at least look at the miracles so that you might believe. But that doesn't produce faith either because there's a hard-heartedness far more for the people who have their own sense, their own humanized standard of rituals and righteousness than there is to those who are well aware of their righteousness. All that to say this, the problem with the human law is the human heart. The problem with human law, okay, works righteousness, 
is the human heart. I do this uh, to my church about good personism all the time. I want to do it here on the deep dive. So you think you're a good person. Okay, based on what? Based on your idea of good? Isn't that convenient? So you are, you are both the test taker and the test administrator of the most important question you will ever answer. Do I have a right to get to heaven? Wow. Now, we don't do that in any other environment in the world. We don't do that for a driving test. We don't do that for a license to carry. We don't do that for uh, graduating high school. We don't do that for any college endeavor. There's always some standard that someone else created, okay, that we have to live up to. And there's usually college of creators that keep that whole standard accountable, right? The most important test you will ever make in life, take in life, is the test on do you have the right to get to heaven? And you can never, ever be your own administrator of the test. Think of how ridiculous that is to consider yourself good based on your own perception of what is good. You, you have a limited understanding of what is good anyway. You do. You have a completely biased view of good. I do too. My, the scriptures have to continue to challenge me because I think that there are certain things that are right that the scriptures say, no, that's not right. That's why, again, Paul says, he who thinks he is wise in his own eyes, let him become a fool, let him become wise. Let me, let me unpack this culturally for a moment. You've got America, which is largely a Christianized country. You've got um, Iraq, which is largely a Muslim, Islamic country. Both countries culturally have these moral humanistic laws. So in America, we say beating your wife is wrong, but homosexuality, well, that's normal, natural, and maybe we should celebrate that. Okay, now take those people that think that, drop them into a Muslim country and see what they say. Because if you said that, you'll get stoned. <laughs> because in a Muslim country, ironically, beating your wife into submission is kind of allowed. And homosexuality, they're throwing them off rooftops and killing them. Who's right? My point is, both are wrong about something. Who's the ultimate arbiter? Not them. God. And so on a microscopic level in your own life, you think certain things are right because you were raised a certain way. And you went to a certain school and you lived in a certain community and, you lived in, and you're maybe even a certain color of skin. And all those things that had nothing to do with you have formed, have informed this moral sense in your life. And there's a good chance that all the people that help form that moral sense are actually far below the standard of righteousness that God expects for humankind to live. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44, be perfect as your heavenly father, as your, as your heavenly father is perfect. You're the result. Not, you don't have any idea of whether it's right and wrong. You have this generalized, culturalized formulation in your mind of what is right and wrong. And God is not going to hold you accountable to that. He's going to hold, hold you accountable to his standard of righteousness. So let's do one more thing. Let's understand human responsibility. No one can claim ignorance. Now, I'm, again, I'm unpacking what it means, what we've talked about. This is what Paul has talked about all throughout Romans chapter 1 through 10. Remember Romans chapter 1, he says, the wrath of God is revealed against from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because they suppress the truth because what is known about God can is plain to them and God has shown it to them and they rejected that. So no one, no one can claim ignorance. We are all, by the way, there's several laws we are all accountable to that we know. There's the natural law. We know that the killing is wrong. That's just a natural law. There's the internal law. We have a conscience that also bears witness that we aren't as good as we should be. There's the revealed law. That's the scriptures. And then there's also the historical law. There's, and what I mean by the historical law is Israel's still here. 
Israel is still here. The Jews are still a people. Like <laughs> there's no Philistines in New York City. There's no Hittites in Seattle. But <laughs> there's Jews everywhere. The historical law has shown that God is still faithful to this one select group of people. It's just kind of amazing. Anyway, I remember when I went to Israel and the guy said at the uh, introduction at the um, at the um, parliament building where we were on the first day of the tour, he said, Israel is the only people who worship the same God, read the same book, and speak the same language for the last 3,000 years. And we were all like, <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> it's so true. Anyway, we all, no one can claim ignorance because there is plenty of law available to us. Uh, there was a remote tribe in Ecuador. Missionaries came and, and, and brought the gospel to them. They were cannibals and they were, you know, killing and eating each other. And there's a guy who, from the tribe, many years later, who was saved, said, I've noticed that you Westerners often think that we ran around killing and eating people because we didn't know any better. And that's not true. We always knew there was a deity of some kind and that he was very displeased with what we were doing. That was literally what he said to the missionary. There's the, mat, there's the internal compass. There's the internal law that God's put, albeit, albeit it is corrupted uh, in our hearts. Uh, Helen Keller, another example. No one can claim ignorance. She was, uh, she, she was uh, blind and deaf at the age of 19. And one day, Ann Sullivan comes and explains God to her. And she does it with a little sign language in her hand. And when she gives you the scripture in sign language that Jesus Christ is God and she needs Jesus and God comes and God loves her. And she literally responded, her eyes, the report is her eyes brightened up, her face brightened up. And she said, oh, that's what you call him. I've known him for a long, long time. Powerful, like really powerful stuff. So no one can claim ignorance. Number two, no one can claim injustice. Because we sin in spite of all the evidence. We sin against our own conscience. We sin against our own ideal of righteousness. So, so you know, another, another way of explaining this too is that what do good benefits do in life but make us proud? And what do the bad events in life do but make us whine? If, if life goes good, we become proud. If life goes bad, we whine. <laughs> Both are sin. Both are sin. Uh, and then number, well, no, let me deal in this a little bit longer because this is an important one. This is going to be a shot to the heart for some people. On the one hand, people in this country, America, they say, I, don't, I can't believe in a God who lets children in Africa starve. Meanwhile, the children in Africa who are starving look at Americans and say, I can't believe they don't believe in a God that gives them all those things. It's quite amazing because you say, well, what are you saying that based on? Because I've been to Africa, because I've seen these children and inconvenient truth, by the way, negligent American, ignorant American, there are far more Christians per capita in Africa than in America, which just betrays the reality that the better off we are, the more proud and unresponsive to the gospel we become. It is God who saves. We need grace. Okay, moving on. God has made himself clearly known, and that is all over the book of Romans. It's all over Psalm 19, and we've talked about that extensively already in this episode. Lastly, God longs for us to repent. He, he longs. Paul longs for Israel to repent, and, and, God, and, and he is going to the nations with the gospel so that they might repent, but ultimately, too, God's heart is and hands are outstretched to an obstinate and contrary people and he still loves them he still loves them and he still wants to save them let's get to why it matters all right here's why it matters guys understanding god's sovereignty over salvation goes perfectly with our need to evangelize pray and do missions understand please do not make the the critical error to say well if god's just going to save whoever he wants then i don't have to do anything that's not what Paul did. And that's not what the church has done historically. 
And that's not what you can afford to do because you're going to be held accountable to the things that you did for Christ. Paul has unpacked two full chapters of, his, of, his, of the doctrine of God's sovereignty while at the same time expressing repeatedly his earnest desire, his heart that is broken, his prayers that are going up to heaven to see the salvation of his people. Now, you have to realize that God has sovereignly elected you, but he's also sovereignly elected you to share the gospel. So that brings me to this. Lastly, we must go. We must go. I'm doing a message this week in church called, you can't spell go without, you can't spell gospel without go. <laughs> the gospel is spelled with G-O, go. Number one, we are sent to the world to bring the message of salvation. Beautiful feet, right? Beautiful feet. The, the least attractive part of our body becomes beautiful when we share, when we use those feet to take the gospel to the nations. Number two, we must preach the gospel and fight against distortions. This is why Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the gospel. One of the best things you can do to be a messenger of Jesus is to invite people to a gospel preaching church with you. Invite your friends. Who are you praying for right now? Who are you praying for right now to know Christ? Who are you asking God to save? Be instrumental in this. This is why preaching is so important. This is why churches must not ever abdicate preaching of the word, preaching of the gospel. We cannot abdicate. We cannot abdicate preaching the gospel for preaching social issues or preaching political issues or preaching the pulpit is sacred the gathering of God's people to hear the word of God to open the scriptures and to and to and to preach Christ what Paul says to the Corinthians I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified we open the scriptures we tell people about Christ we must never ever distort the word or use the word to 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 tickle itching ears Paul says to Timothy preach the word be in season out season out of season reprove rebuke correct be rightly dividing the word of truth. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me that I, may, that I might preach the gospel. So many distortions, by the way. So many distortions in the gospel, especially even in the modern church, in the modern cool church. A distortion that I have mentioned ad nauseum on this channel. These church, these big celebrity pastors who want to basically preach about you and not Christ. Preach about how you can be great. You can be awesome. and Nobody's going to stop you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you stink. And Jesus is great. <laughs> he was great for you so that you could be great in him. Amen. Number three, and finally, we must depend totally on God's power to save and not our ability to convince. And when we preach the gospel, that's what we're doing because we're saying, I can't, I can't philosophize this into you. This is a work of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the word of God. When Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and he proclaims you with your wicked hands, you crucified the Lord of glory, but God has raised him from the dead. And we are declaring to you that this Christ whom you crucified is both Lord and Savior. And the scripture immediately says, and they were cut to the heart. These very people who demanded Christ be crucified are now cut to the heart by the gospel that Paul preaches, Peter preaches. And 3,000 of them are saved. 3,000 people who wanted Christ dead just weeks earlier are now converted and baptized and following him and spreading the message of the gospel everywhere. Because it's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do me a favor, like, share, subscribe. Like, share, subscribe. That's the episode, guys. I'm so glad that you were here. I'm so glad that you joined me. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing to you. I thank God that you took time out on Wednesday night. I know it's a long message, but I said that last week, and then everybody in the comments, I saw you were like, don't worry, it's not a problem. Keep going. We love it. So I went longer today. Maybe next week I'll go an hour and a half. Who knows? Uh, I got to try to keep it short because people won't even pay attention if it's too long. Uh, 10 Questions with Tim is coming up, so make sure you get your questions there. Next week we will be back for the deep 
end. And I hope that you're watching that content as well, especially about all that nonsense that they are selling to your kids in the public school system. I am more concerned for than ever before to fight for your children, and you should be too. Other than that, God bless you. Have a great night. God bless you.